You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast. Legendary backcountry snowboarder Jeremy Jones describes being in the mountains as the idiot's guide to the present moment. This wisdom and so much more shines through in this interview with Jeremy about his new book, The Art of Shralpinism, Lessons from the Mountains. Shralpinism, or the art of shredding and alpinism combined, is, according to Jeremy, a mix of the wisdom of reading avalanche danger, the science of changing conditions due to climate change, the art of evaluating risk and pushing past fear, and so much more. Jeremy shares stories from his many years of snowboarding in Alaska and other big mountain ranges, his tips on training, why he fell in love with going up as well as flowing down mountains, why most climbers should learn a little something about snow, and how to wrestle with the hard lessons the mountains teach you about danger, risk, and confidence. Listen in to this episode to get stoked and learn from the legendary Big Mountain Shredder, originator of Jones Snowboards and Protect Our Winters, and devoted practitioner of the Church of the Seven-Day Recreationists. Well, Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Um, I don't think I'm up to being able to explain your deep resume, so why don't you introduce yourself? (laughs) Wow. Um, Well, I am a father, husband, own Jones Snowboarder or Jones Snowboards, started Protect Our Winners, and um, am a devout member of the Church of the Seven Day Recreationalists. I love that. I kept seeing that in your book, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I've ever heard that before. <laughs> nice. And the real question is, how many days have you gotten out riding so far this year? I think about fifteen, and uh, about this past kind of 10 days I've probably read nine out of the last 10 days so it's been um we've been on an incredible run right now and I've learned just get it while you can because you don't you know we get crazy weather and it's on right now so I'm uh legs are tired which is great yeah seriously nine days on insane okay so we're here partially to just kind of talk about your new book, The Art of Shalpinism. Um, so I guess I want to just start with what inspired the book? Where did the idea come from and what kind of compelled you to finally like make it a reality? Well, I have always enjoyed the process of writing. So I've kept journals for a long time. And then occasionally I would publish something from that journal. And so, but I really definitely never thought about a book, but there's a woman at Mountaineers Books, Kate Rogers, who's wrangled books out of many climbers and outdoors people for many years. And, and I, we got to be friends at the trade shows because I love books and reading as well. And she's just this wonderful woman. And we started talking about it and we talked about it for years and I gave her some sample writing and she's like, let's do this. And then I'm like, how am I going to find time to write a book? And finally, I just was like, well, I've never done this before. Let's give it a whirl. And then I have a, my neighbor, this guy, Chris Crossan, who's a good friend, uh, you know, really proficient in the mountains, similar mindset. He helped wrangle some of my stuff. And it was really nice having him there because I could just write freely. I know we have the same view of the mountains. 
and he could kind of help smooth my stuff out, which was great. Or if I crossed the line on site, I didn't have to worry about crossing the line on stuff because I knew Chris would catch it, so to speak. And so it was very nice to be able to just kind of like throw it out there. Yeah. And so there's um, kind of several different elements to the book. And I think you're starting to speak to the way it got organized, which I think there's three main sections, right? There's wisdom, science, and art. And I really love that you included those different facets of riding and being in the mountains. Um, So can you tell me a little bit about why you chose to not just, you know, do like, this is how to make these types of turns, or this is how to think about avalanche danger, but thought about the art of it as well? Yeah, I think of as far as like, all things mountains. Uh, there's the technical side of things and the things that you learn in textbooks and stuff. And there's amazing textbooks out there. And But I come at it from a snowboarder who's like, I want to go ride the best lines in the best conditions, do it safely, do it over and over again. If something goes wrong, I want to be able to rescue my buddies. But I'm not trying to be an avalanche educator. I'm not trying... I don't really care about credentials. I'm not trying to be a guide. And I felt like that would be writing this thing from really a skier or snowboarders or what I would call a shroudiness perspective, uh, hopefully makes it more relatable. And I also think there's this huge mental side of things and the spirit in which you go in the mountains and make your decisions and things of that nature is such a huge part of going into the mountains. I mean, you could ace every avalanche test, every rope mountain guide test, and that stuff is important and it will make you absolutely proficient in the mountains, but that's not the only thing. There's so much out there that you can't really learn in a in a classroom or that they don't really teach in a classroom. So I was hopefully, I think the book is a really good complement to traditional training stuff. And it comes at it from that lifetime in the mountains. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. That was my experience of it. Um, I felt like the soul of being in the mountains was captured, which is really cool. (laughs) So kind of to back up a second, this is a podcast aimed at climbers specifically, right? But there are so much overlap, obviously. We all love being in the mountains. I mean, I think a lot of climbers don't necessarily even think of themselves as mountain people. You know, if they're in the red, they're not necessarily thinking of themselves as mountains lovers, but so much climbing is in the mountains. So I think there's also a ton of just general overlap between recreationists who do descent type style stuff and climbing. So like, how do you see this book being relevant for people who aren't necessarily like going to be the big mountain athlete that you are? Um, is there something in it for other people? Yeah. So there is, um, I mean, I would say 20% of the book is maybe tactical, uh, or I'd say from a, just a pure snowboard thing. I mean, maybe less than 10%. And then get into the avalanche side that a lot of climbers can relate to. And, and I think that us, I'm in a deep snowpack so much and climbers are not seeking that out, but it inevitably can happen where alpinists end up having to deal with a deep snowpack. And so there's that avalanche side of things, but I don't, I'd say, um, 
if I had to guess, it's like 60% of the book is like dealing with fear, listening to nature, being in the right mindset, group dynamics, how you frame things is really important. And, and like, yeah, there's, yeah. So I'd say that there, the, the crossovers are so many, which is why I'm well aware of the awesome work that you guys do. I'm a subscriber to Alpinist Magazine. I read mountaineering books and because there's a total cross-sectional learning going on through there. And so, yeah, I, I think that the climber would relate to a lot of the mindset stuff. Yeah. So I think in the, in the book, you, you tell a little bit of the story of what made you decide to move from the types of descents that involved helicopters to human-powered um, expeditions. And I think that's really interesting, especially to climbers, because that's where the climbing part got added in. So tell us about that. When did like climbing or alpinism get in, on your radar? Was it just at that moment, or were you kind of already in that space already? Well, I... I've always wanted to, um, that spirit of like evolving through new lines, uh, which obviously climbers and alpinists, we share that same ethos. And so that would lead me to, uh, my early forays in the back country were done hiking out of the gates at say Jackson hole or really any resort Teton pass, kind of that low hanging fruit back country or side country type riding. And then got really involved in mechanized snowboarding, uh, using helicopters to make movies, snowmobiles. And, but I just realized that it was really limiting was one factor. It was as I started doing more and more time in the mountains, uh, hiking and splitboarding and stuff, I, my connection to the mountains was so much greater. The complexities to, be on a face for hours on end opposed to like a minute or two meant you needed to be so much more tuned in, which I loved. And the end result of that was I was getting these incredible highs where just the, to climb these spine walls and to be on that wall for that long and then to ride them. And it was really emotional. And, but I was largely making my, my living was based off being in snowboard movies and all the snowboard companies when i started to be like hey we gotta like go past the boundaries and um start hiking and do and winter camping and stuff they're like how are we going to charge the batteries and the lenses are going to get fogged and da, 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 da. so i really had to find new people and change this system my last year embracing mechanized travel. I was in five films, which generally a snowboarder for you're in one film, you're psyched. So my career couldn't have been better, but I was 30. I had a daughter and I was like, the pull was so strong. And I actually wrote this down in a journal that I have in front of me uh, in 2007. We were like big game hunters equipped with spotlights and rifles. It was time to grab the bow and arrow and camping gear. Time to give these mountains the respect they deserve. Time to sleep under those these dream lines to learn from them and live with them. Then when the time became right to tiptoe up them and snowboard back down. And as soon as I started doing, and then another big factor is I had started really in 2005, started doing the work with Protect Our Winter. So I was also becoming more aware of my impact and it just didn't feel right that 
spe- specifically the helicopter stuff just had, you know, it was, it was a very resource high dependency that it, it didn't feel quite as right. But at the end of the day, and that was what a lot of my friends uh, were like, wow, you're really taking this environmental stuff really serious. And, and how's that hippie snowboard film going? And uh, and what they didn't realize is I'm like, I think I can ride the best lines in my life on foot. And it took some time. And then the other factor was if I was out there hiking these mountains and winter camping and going, man, I wish I had a helicopter. I would have walked away from snowboarding. I'd be at the beach right now. And the opposite happened. It reinvigorated me to where now I'm on snow eight, nine months a year because I just cannot get enough of it because of this. As climbers know, it's everything's every day is a little different. And it it's um, just so addicting, but in, a, in what I think is a more healthy manner. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. So that actually made me think of um, when these days, when you're like, you know, dreaming up your next big thing, how much is it like purely like that descent or those potential lines look incredible? I need to get on that feature. Or is part of the pull, even the climbing element of like, I'll have to climb that spine in order to do that descent. Like that, that's really inspiring too. Yeah, I... um the approaches and whatever I can do without, I mean, I don't, they're fine. I don't mind. It's nice. Like easing into the day, but I'm definitely like, I'm like be psyched when we're moving on. Once I get over the Bertrand and into the steeps and specifically like my favorite thing is when you finally claw your way up the deep snow in Alaska and get on a defined spine and you're in the middle of the spine wall because that's when you're actually really safe because you're on this, you know, it's a 50 degree ridge basically. And to be on a face like that, it's one of nature's most beautiful features in the world. And so to be there and be secure, once I'm on that, like I really don't want that to end. It's just like I want the biggest one possible. And so there's that side of thing. And then so much of my snowboarding is done in the Sierra. So we're hiking these big coulars and a lot of days, uh, it's the, you know, hasn't snowed in a month. It's wind packed. It's, um, the down is kind of C grade, but the climb is a grade. So yeah, I really am addicted to that vertical world going up. I, I still have zero appetite for walking downhill. That's where we differ. <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say there's there is some fundamental differences for like regular alpinists who aren't like seeking the fast descent necessarily. <laughs> so I have to tell a really funny story. Um, and mind you, I climb in the summer, so I walk downhill a lot. Um, <laughs> so I'm not against it. But um, in so I was two years into this. We were in. I was on my second trip to Alaska. So I probably at this phase I'd been. 50, between the two of them, probably 50 days of camping in um, the Fairweather Range, which is in Glacier National Park, uh, really remote range that you take a plane and get dropped off of. And um, so we get, I had this great idea because this line that I wanted to ride, it was, uh, was going to be, we had to kind of 
come from our base camp, go, took like an hour or two to get to the base. And then it was a, um, like a 3,500 foot climb. And, but we wanted to drop in right at sunrise. And so our plan was, uh, myself and Ryland Bell is where we decided we'd bring our really light, like just sleeping bag, bivy, like bivy kit with a small stove. And we'd sleep on top of the line. And then at first light, we'd walk over and we had, we had these duffel bags and we would put our camping gear in the duffel bag and throw it down this 3,500 foot couloir. And I'm there going like, oh my God, like, why don't alpinists do this? This is a no brainer. And so Rylan and I get to the end and you're kind of like, it's against everything you've ever learned. Just chuck something off the edge of a mountain. And I'm like, do I throw it? Do I drop it? But I'm holding it on the edge and I finally, and I, and I'm about to let it go. And I'm like, this is my only sleeping bag and my only sleeping pad. And there's a big birch run at the bottom and I let it go. And, um, the thing goes like a hundred miles down the mountain and it's taking huge airs and it's, and, and then we can see the birch run and we're like, Oh, get over the birch run and it clips the lip. And then like gets over it and then tumbles into the flats and we walked over to our our line and I rode the best line of my life that I'd ever ridden. It was the first time I could say that on foot and rolled up to a stop right at my camping gear. But I've never done that again. Uh, that is, <laughs> I'm not here to tell Trialpinus that I cracked the code because that, um, like now I know why alpinists do that. Yeah, that's pretty scary. Like all your warmth going away. <laughs> like yes. what if it disappears forever. Very cool. Cool. So this is kind of related to a question I asked earlier, but if you're thinking about like the, say like you're just like strictly a rock climber, but you do have access to skiing, riding, even just resort skiing and riding. Do you think there's something like that can be learned for like a mountain athlete in general? Like even if they're not interested in like doing shroudenism, like, is there something to be learned by kind of having that cross-section if they have, like, you know, the opportunity and money to go skiing as well if you're a climber? Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I think if you're, like, a hardcore, it's part of your life, you like, especially, for sure, if you like riding um, or climbing mountains, then you're crazy not to, and you live near, say, winter, to not embrace shroudenism and to walk up these things in winter and then frolic down them uh, on skis or a snowboard. And then if that is something that ends up grabbing you, then the resort one, it's kind of like the climbing gym is how I look at it. And so you get your reps in, you get strong in an easy manner Two, I would say it is, um, it's fun going to the resort. If like definitely midweek at one of these mega or um, a weekend at a mega resort, say off of I-70, that's not many people's idea of fun. I would stay the hell away from that. So go to the smaller ones. And then if you have kids, I do a lot of stuff with my, climb with my kids, mountain bike, we backpack. And we also snowboard. I was just snowboarding with my kids uh, right before this, this podcast. And that is where the sport gets really special because the, if, the, I mean, now you're out there with all these things in the outdoors, you're, you're partners. It's not necessarily a parent kid scenario, but it is just the joy of 
sizing up cliffs together and maybe mom like does some, whatever is going on someone's cartwheeling or what have you it's just the the laughter the joy the teamwork it's everyone's equal out there in the mountains and again with climbing also so it's where you really see the power of the outdoors i think that one of the aspects of your book that really captured that sense from from you for me was the illustrations the illustrations like really brought the book together and i was so blown away to know that you created all of them is that correct yeah so yeah tell me about where did art start in your life and where does your particular art style come from especially in the book so my my art i mean i think i was just naturally always enjoyed art class was always my favorite um it was the only a i would ever get but uh, i never i i have never considered myself like this great artist and my dad uh he's a great oil artist and paints every day and he would say uh you know his mantra is paintings about getting on the other side of your brain and letting it take you for a ride and so the outcome is irrelevant. It's about the process. And I always felt when I'm doing it that I feel like I'm using a different part of my brain. And so a lot of these things are just doodles and a lot of it, uh, it's tough, you know, I'm pretty busy at home. So a lot of the stuff's like painted in a tent and during a long storm in Alaska where I have all this free time. And I definitely... Never, and I view writing with that same deal about the process. And I, I never planned on sharing it, but I thought it would give the book a nice color. Absolutely. Yeah. So, did it take, like, were some of the illustrations in the book kind of from like a stockpile of things you had made before and then some of them for the, for the book specifically? Like, how long did it take to create all of those? These are all just pulled from journals. I didn't do any art specifically for the book. Okay, cool. So yeah, just being, it's wild. And I talk about, um, well, here's another thing, for example, that I think I touch on this a lot that, um, just a brief reading that I think sums it up, um, with art and writing and everything is I believe in the power of compounding returns that implementing small things into my life, like a simple morning routine routine done over and over for years on end can lead to major returns. The same holds true for simple diet changes, staying hydrated, and reading and writing and art a little every day. Look at your path in life as a series of decisions. I think of how those decisions I think of those decisions like turns on the mountain. How you weave those decisions together is how you weave through life. Just as making good turns is a never-ending pursuit, the same goes with decisions. By reading, writing, creating art, surrounding myself with inspiring people. I evolve and my decisions evolve. So that I think really sums up that the outcomes are relevant with all this stuff. We know science tells us it's good to open up more of the brain, more of the brain, better decisions. Yes. So everyone should get into art. <laughs> or whatever, Maybe it's, um, it, it's reading or, and yeah, I think the problem why people don't do art is they're afraid if they're, oh, I'm no good at it. And that's why loving and a lot of the book is about framing stuff. And if you look at it as the outcomes are relevant, then who cares what your art looks like? Right. Yeah. I was terrified to share my art. I did not want it ever in public. 
Yeah, so um, you just mentioned evolving decisions. One of the um, things that really struck me about reading your book was, you know, you talk about the importance of partners you can trust in the mountains, which is, I think, is like an ongoing conversation that, you know, the mountain athletes are really talking about these days. And you were really, really just clear about if you need to be okay, all of your partners need to be okay with giving up the objective for the sake of safety. So without naming names, unless you want to, how did you learn this lesson? Like, do you have any like moments that you remember that helps like you learn this lesson? Well, I guess I'll answer the end first, which is I realized early on, um, there's a statement in the book, ego is not your amigo. And I saw, I would see ego in the mountains and I was like, that is really dangerous. And then I would have mistakes in the mountains. You probably can't see like the scar on my cheek. That's ego based mistake right there. So ego is not your amigos. Sure. It's about your partners, but it's also about yourself. And we need to be really cognizant of that. And it's just a, so personally and with groups and then with being in the mountains with people, I think a huge thing, and this is where I really, and I think climbing's changing. You could tell me this, but that whole, oh, my greatest failure was when I was 200 feet from the summit and I turned around and it's like, that was your greatest success. And that, that has changed, right? Yeah. For the most part, I would say. Yeah. And so I always look at the mountains as, hey, let's go look at this line. Let's start towards it. Let's feel it out. I feel good about moving forward. And I look at it as a complex line. You're stepping into there where you have 20 no's that need to be turned into 20 yeses. And oftentimes it's up at the top of these spaces where the convex roll is, where say it's the 18th or 19th uh, no that needs to be flipped that is most likely to be the one that's going to turn you around. And so when you're climbing the mountain, and you're like, oh, sweet, green light, green light, green light. But you, it's almost when you get to the top, it, it, it's more of a, I can't believe the mountains have opened up their arms and we are actually standing here opposed to like, I'm my head down, we're the summit or bust, which I jokingly love to say, but I don't <laughs> actually practice it. <laughs> Did you know that AAC's rescue benefit doesn't just apply to climbing? We know our members are getting outside in so many different ways, from backcountry skiing, to mountain biking, to trail running. So we made sure our rescue benefit and medical expense coverage has your back, no matter what activity you are doing if an accident occurs. Become an AAC member today and make sure you're covered for the next time you're chasing POW, chasing the grade, or gunning for the next ultra. Learn more at americanalpineclub.org rescue. Yeah, I like that way of thinking about it. There all knows that you have to like have an emphatic yes. And I think that's a really good practical way of thinking about it. And a big thing with in my world, um, in the snow world, is just the avalanche factor is so significant. And I don't consider myself an expert. We lose 120 people a year to avalanche deaths worldwide. Uh, so it's one bad call can erase a lifetime of good calls. And it's really being tuned in to that that is never ending. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I I think I your discussion of um, kind of like 
just because you've taken several AVI courses and you feel like you've um, learned it all doesn't mean necessarily anything. You like need to earn years and years of experience. Um, and I think that's really interesting. I talked to a USA team ice climber who also ice climbs outside a lot, uh, Tyler Kempney, for the last episode of the podcast. And he was talking a lot about like ice climbers need to be aware of AVI danger too. Like especially in the Rockies, all the gullies have AVI danger and they're the ones for like those gullies are forming the best ice climbs around. So it's really interesting. I think I know a lot of climbers who think as AVI danger as like specifically a backcountry skiing and boarding thing. And they don't really worry about it. And I was like, I don't know about that. I'm, I'm hearing a lot that it's really, really important for anybody that's going to be in the winter, winter climbing or skiing space. Yeah. And I watch climbing. There's a, uh, you know, an ice climbing. I just saw a film with Kitty Calhoun and Molly. I can't say her last name, scale of hope. And, um, but I mean, even there, what you get with ice climbers is you climb something. And then if you have to like top out, it's so common that there's steep, soft snow. And the reality is a picnic table that breaks in that scenario, you know, size avalanche will pull you off the mountain. And we see that. Unfortunately, we've lost um, some amazing people to the avalanche side of things. So, yeah, I mean, I think if you're really into alpinism and and getting in the in anything in the winter, I think, yeah, I mean, there's avalanches. They dictate everything. So kind of related to this, you have this graph in the book of life events versus confidence. Yeah. Um, tell us about that. Why is confidence such an important part of the equation? Well, you got to know yourself. And so for me, my biggest thing is like, I want nothing more to go and um, say, ride the best line in the biggest condition or in the, in the perfect conditions and like fifth gear wide open, just send it and come out the bottom surrounded by slough going 50 miles an hour, screaming at the top of my legs. So for me, my mantra in the mountains is just say no, just say no. You can turn around on anything and it's like trying to get really present. So I just, I think that that is understanding yourself and the mountains, I mean, they're so serious and and they touching on the experience stuff. One of the things at the very beginning of the book, I talk about experience is something you get just after you need it. And so I unfortunately am quite experienced and I, that was a big thing for me to write the book where I'm like, maybe I can talk about all these mistakes I've made that have made me more experienced and maybe save someone from having to make the same mistakes that I've made uh, and not have to learn that hard lesson. And at the end of the day, that's the the why a book because if i can maybe help one person make a decision that saves their life and that's worth it yeah absolutely i also think um that graph in particular i think in the climbing community especially I, you hear a lot especially the kind of older mentor crew be like you know i've lost a lot of friends in the mountains and that's kind of it sometimes and and so the fact that your book goes further than that and like really kind of delves into what that feels like and how kind of like a shock to the system it is, um, I think makes it really raw and real for people. Because I think it's one thing if you're a young gun and you think you are infallible and you will never die to he like really hear about it instead of just, yeah, I've lost some friends, 
but like, no, this is really real. Yeah. So I, I remember when I turned 24 and I was celebrating my birth um, with my brother it was late at night and he got all serious and he looked at me and he said, make it past 24. And for where we were at in our phase, it was kind of my, both my brothers and I, we would, it was like live back East at 18, went all in on snow, had the Abbey course under our belt. Uh, so kind of just enough knowledge or rope, so to speak, to, to get yourself into trouble and hang yourself. And that's that perfect cross section. And if you look at the graph in the book at the very, you know, at the very end, you know, you start out really high and towards the end, you know, you have these events and you drop way down, you take an AVI course, you go back up, you have another event, drop way down, you know, and, and by the end you have this long, slow, gradual line. And I don't know a single person that has been doing, you know, playing in the mountains for 20 plus years that isn't on that slow line towards the end. And what's so disheartening is my big confidence cliffs that I have fallen off of. They're eight years apart where I'm like, oh, I got this, like I'm, that's, I'm beyond that. And so that's what's so unfortunate and humbling about the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. They, they come at you when you least expect it for sure. Yeah. Things that have never happened often happen. So we talk, we're just talking about confidence. What, and you've been talking about ego. Also, you kind of talk about the idea of um, not being afraid enough, you know, having too much ego and on the flip side, fighting with the boogeyman fear. What do you mean by that? Like, tell me all about that. Oh, the boogeyman fear. I might have it right here. Where is my fear? So, well, here is a note on fear. This specifically, and then I'll go into boogeyman, but I believe that fear is the most powerful and detrimental emotion in life and the biggest culprit keeping us from our dreams. For me, there are two types of fear, fear of dying, which is good fear and fear, fear of failure, which is bad fear. Astonishingly, I've lost more sleep over fear of failure than fear of dying. Understanding the root of your fear and having an intimate relationship with your fear is critical. Fear can keep you alive, but it can also keep you from living. So, Specifically, boogeyman fear is where the simplest example, anyone that's been in the mountains at, at night. So you wake up in the middle of the night, you're climbing up a mountain, starts getting steeper. You got to cross a Bertrand. You're seeing some spin drifts. You're hearing seracs off in the distance and you know, you're nowhere near them. You've had this plan in the, you made it the day before that you're going to get up in the middle of the night and da, 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 da. And I've determined we're all afraid of the dark. And so I've wasted a couple precious Alaskan high pressure days where we got to that Birch run and like something changed. Did it get windy last night? Da, 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 da. And we turn around and skin back to camp and get to camp just as the sun's coming up and look at our track. And we're in the exact spot we wanted to be at the perfect time. And we talked ourselves out of it and we just wasted a day. That's boogeyman fear. But knowing is it boogeyman fear or not boogeyman fear is the trick. And that's why having that intimate relationship is key. And I, sorry to keep doing these readings, but I, there's another thing that I think sums up shroudpanism and alpinism. Can I read it? Is that okay? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I just did a book talk last night. So I'm like, oh, I got all the stuff teed up for my final, um, but the mountains are whispering us. 
Brainwaves and senses wide open and alert to pick up the words, moods, and lights the mountains are whispering to us. At first, our minds are cluttered and noisy. We struggle to hear their whispers. With patience and openness, we start a conversation. What are they telling us? Agendas and egos muddle their words. An open and quiet mind, coupled with low expectations and acceptance of the mountains, is the key to a long life dancing in these untamed and unruly environments. Understanding when to dig in and push through the hard times, be totally committed to a goal, charging into the dark unknown, past your comfort zone and past the boogeyman, but just as easily turning your back on the goal without hesitation when the door gets slammed shut. That is the dance. That is the art of shrapanism. So, yeah, I mean, and then so that gets to like, are you in the right headspace out there to hear those things and and that ability to push through hard times and but also be able to walk, turn your back on a goal when the scale, the danger scale tips too high is that's the hardest thing in the mountains. Yeah. Like both at the mountains can very easily tell you no, but they can also tell you yes. So you have to hear yes as well when it's the mountains are telling you yes. There's a section, you know, throughout the book, you feature voices and insights from other big mountain athletes that are like, you know, paved the way sort of thing, have a lot of insights. And I noticed you had a section from Hillary Nelson and she's a big hero of mine. And especially knowing that we just lost her. I wanted to pose a question that you posed to her back at you. When was the last time something in the mountains caught you off guard and the snow behaved in a manner you did not anticipate? Well, that is a great um, question to throw back at me. Um, I love that. And I'd have to, God, I got to think about that. I, it's been a long time, I would say. And again, go back to that confidence chart. <laughs> um, all I can think about is not from like getting caught off guard, but I was in Alaska and kind of in this like spined out the this spine mecca that I had found in Alaska and set up perfectly for it. We hiked in off a boat. It's in HBO Edge of the Earth and film that we made. And then it got to be 75 degrees in Juneau. And I watched the mountains fall down in front of me over a two day period. I think we estimated 300 avalanches the first day, 200 avalanches the second day. And that was a shocking thing to see. And I talk about it in the book and I always look at what are the opportunities that the situation presents. And so here we are, we're two you know, two and a half weeks into our trip, we trekked 18 miles from the ocean. We have our camp set. We're in the perfect spot. It took us five days or six days on a boat to just to get to where we got dropped off. And the first high pressure does this to the mountains. And, but what it did do is we were in the high peak, it was in the fair weather range, and we were looking at these lower elevation stuff and it opened up Mount Bertha, which traditionally, if you wanted to snowboard, it would be more of a June thing because it's a ball of ice in April. And this rain and this warm up allowed just enough snow to stick to it. And so we were able to thankfully move up instead of looking at 7,000 foot peaks, which are 
big in in the coast ranges of Alaska, we're able to move up to this 10,000 foot peak. So yeah, it doesn't totally answer your question, but did the best I could. <laughs> yeah. And that was an unexpected moment and you, you cr created something great out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that story. Okay. Do you do any specific climbing based training or alpine, more like alpinist based training in addition to practicing turns and all that type of stuff you talk about for training for riding? Well, rock climbing, I love rock climbing in the summer. Having like I had some back issues and then climbing was the only thing that I could do for a little bit. And I, there's no question climbing has helped me so much moving through the mountains with just technical moves that I'm pretty comfortable with. And so, and then what I love about rock climbing is I love being middle of the road athlete with definitive, like if I go and climb four days, I can be at another level and then another level. And I can, it's really hard for me to do stuff that I've never done before on a snowboard. I have to like put my head down for 120 days and by May I'm fit and tuned up. And if I can get the right high pressure, I might be able to bump my progression baton an inch or two forward. But in climbing, I'm like a cheap drunk when it comes to progression. And yeah, I think the mindset of climbing is just so and how it's idiot's guide to present moment. Uh, you know, you, you're tough to get distracted when you're above gear leading. Uh, so I love that. And then from, and I, I call it my power yoga. I just think that it use your whole body and, and everything about climbing is so good, uh, mentally and physical, uh, for the mountains. And then I will, as I'm, if I'm getting ready to do a, like a bigger trip, it's usually in the spring, like a May or June thing. If it's a, like when I, I've only been to Denali once, but for example, I'm, I would, um, bring big heavy packs of water and climb these mountains. And then in summer and fall, I will climb or hike mountains with rocks in my bag and, and just to get strong for, for snow. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like grueling, but probably very important. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the heavy pack stuff is, it's funny because we've been talking a lot about Alaska, but the, my greatest challenge as a shroudinist has been getting a layer back in the Sierra and doing these say seven to 10 day self-supported winter trips that we have everything on our back just because the weight of carrying these heavy packs is really hard. And, and it's been, what I call the the wonderful problem, which is, you know, I, I always like the thick sections of ranges. That's where the best snow is. That's where the the so often the best lines are hidden underneath the high peaks. The high peaks take all the weather, and then they throw all the snow to a lower one. And I think it, I actually think it, Steve House has a quote in here. There is a climber quote. There's quite a bit of climber uh, quotes, or maybe I got it from Graham Zimmerman, but as you take that shift off of the, say, the high, high peaks and move it down a notch, um, that's what I do with snowboarding. But it's so much effort to, say, cross something off your so-called hit list. And we do these things where 
couple days into the trip, you finally get to your objective, you stand on top of it, high fives, can't believe we're here, we've been looking at this for so long, and then you look out across the horizon and you see 10 more. So <laughs> it's why I call it the wonderful problem. The hit list just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, that does seem like a lovely problem to have. Yes. <laughs> cool. So in the art section of your book, you turn to like discussing awareness and navigation of climate change as part of the art of tropinism, um, including something I hadn't really heard before, and that changes in, in precipitation due to climate change is not just about like more or less precipitation in a specific area, it's also that it dumps in like big storms. Um, can you tell me about like why that's a particular problem? Is it just like the snowpack is super unstable? Yeah, so as we see this more um, aggressive weather events, it's creating, and then when, and how that works with snow is, say, you might have a Arctic cold front. So in general, we break about 40,000 weather records a year. 30,000 of those are warm weather, 10,000 are cold weather. So that cold weather scenario where maybe the coastal mountains of Alaska will all of a sudden be Arctic for two, three weeks, high pressure, crazy winds, and it will put down surface that you would normally see in Colorado. And now you're dealing with this complex snowpack in a place that in the past would have this really uh, steady temperature range of, uh, and that's what you want in the mountains is you the perfect scenario is a couple of inches of snow two, three times a week, uh, followed by some high pressures. Uh, but you throw in like 120 mile an hour winds. We're going to get, uh, we're scheduled for something like four to six feet in the next 36 hours. That is, that can complicate things. It might solve some things too. The irony is, what I've seen in Colorado, for example, traditionally has, uh, you'll get say a bad layer or more. I spent a lot of time in the Tetons where you will get this bad layer, which is common in the Tetons or Colorado to get this midwinter high pressure. And you and, and when that would traditionally happen, you're like, man, our snowpack screwed that. Like who knows of when that like, Backcountry, anything of significant, say, risks or what have you is off the table for at least three months and maybe for the year is the way that what we call deep instability in the mountains is. But you now could have like spring skiing in Jackson Hole or rain to the top in January. I was there the first time it rained to the top in January. Everyone freaked out. Well, it actually solved this avalanche problem that they thought was going to take months. So it's an example of these crazy fluctuations that further complicate the snow. Yeah. Would you, do you have any other examples of like the way that changing weather environments like changes your decision-making or has changed your decision-making over the years? Well, there's a poem in the book, send while you can. And the reality is what I'm looking for, what we're all looking for is stable, you know, soft snow that's stable. And that really only lines up three to five times a year if you're lucky. And you just got to we patiently wait and kind of chip our way around. And when I say three to five years, that's or three to five days. That means you could be on 
a huge face that of severe consequences and drop in and ride it at 40 miles an hour and deep pow because it's totally stable and but if it you know and that that type of scenario just it comes around a couple times a year and when it does you better be ready to go and when it doesn't there's a lot in the book on like things to do when avalanche danger is high clean your closet go cross-country skiing meadow ski i talk a lot about meadow skipping which is uh, staying out of avalanche terrain and it's important to have a device that works in 30 degrees or below to i have a snowboard that does that that it's like so so much of my stuff when we do have complexity in the snowpack it's just avoidance uh, right now we got a kind of some weirdness northeast aspect between six and seven thousand feet and it's I, I'm, I'm staying out of consequential terrain in that area. It's this stubborn, persistent weak layer. That's something that kills more people in the mountains than anything. And what that means is it's a layer that's hard to trigger, but if it's triggered, it will um, go really big. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're about to wrap up. Do you, ha- you want to share any other stories or wisdom from the art of shalpinism to get people psyched to buy your book? <laughs> I do. I just want to touch quickly on um, climate and then I do, I'll do one more final reading and yeah. And it's, I think it's in the book. I talk, um, I purposely made it pretty far, um, you know, delve into like all things mountains and what it means to, to be a climber, a skier, a snowboarder is, you know, so I dive into some of these bigger issues towards the end, which is climate which is diversity and inclusion in the mountains. I, there's some great stuff and there's a lot of, you know, one of the things that get me over the hump on doing the book is when I realized I'm like, you know, I'm going to go and bring in all these other voices. And there's some incredible uh, women voices in there that talk about group dynamics with women and things that I think are really important. And a friend of mine told me, he's like, I did the math. There's over 350 years of experience in your book. Uh, so, which is really cool. But so, yeah, the, you know, I tackle some of these teethier issues. And I guess just on the climate front, I know that this reaches the the climbing world a little bit different community than normal. And I just say, you know, what we're doing at Protect Our Winners is guided by science, our intentions are pure and the scientists have been really clear for us to get the co2 reduction we need we need to do it through policy and so that's why we're so active on capitol hill and getting the vote out and i'm sure people are sick of hearing protect our winners and our athletes saying vote 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 but an example of why um we've been pushing this is this inflation reduction act that got passed by the slimmest of margins. I mean, there is probably a congressional seat in Colorado that was won by 200 votes that collectively got us to just enough political power to pass this inflation reduction act that incentivizes this transition to a clean tech economy. And it's already led to um, massive investments. At first, they thought it was going to be about $360 billion spent on clean tech manufacturing. This is all in the U.S., which is super exciting. And I mean, in the first two weeks, it was $30 billion and 10,000 jobs announced. And it's one of the things that's kept me optimistic with climate is that we have the solutions and they create a ton of jobs. And it's just 
So it's creating that political will because the fossil fuel industry has soaked half of our elected officials in fossil fuel money. And the only way we combat that is with political will. And that's why we're trying to unite the outdoor state because the outdoor economy, the climbers, the skiers, everyone that loves the outdoors is actually bigger than the extraction industry, bigger than the gun industry, bigger than the pharmaceutical industry. But unlike those industries that are awesome at coming together, the outdoor state is divided. And so my hope is that we can collectively come together and, and get us over the hump because we're running out of time. Yeah, can't uh, overstate enough how appreciative the AAC is to have PAL like as a in the industry and you know to partner with. It's very exciting to work with you guys whenever we do. Yeah, and kudos to you guys. You've been awesome, and the climbers have been awesome. And so we're well on our way, but we just nobody's ever lost an election because they took a bad vote on climate and. I tell you, as soon as we do that, and I'm in the office, when we go, we're a bipartisan group. So we're meeting with, mostly when I go to Capitol Hills, meeting with Republicans, and they basically are like, I want to take this vote on climate without losing my job. Get me the votes. Get me the political will in your community loud enough, and I'll take the vote. But right now, uh, I'm worried if I you know, vote pro-climate, I'm going to lose my job. And it's our job as the outdoor industry to unite on that, to send that clear message. Okay. That's awesome. That's very exciting to hear that the will is there. We just, we can, we can do it. We can make it happen. Yeah. So switching gears, I'll do the final, um, reading. Is that good? Yeah. I mean, this is a book, a book talk. So I know. Um, And this, if there's ever a, like, I think that you could change the word shralpinist to alpinist in this um, ring. So if if you're an alpinist, just think alpinist, not (laughs) shralpinist, but we're all one. But so this is called the shralpinist. The shralpinist is curious, open-minded, and present. The shralpinist is committed to a goal, but nimble, flexible, and willing to change the goal as new knowledge is gained. The shralpinist has an intimate relationship with their fear. The shralpinist respects nature. The Shralpinist is sometimes bold, but always humble. The Shralpinist knows there is no shortcut to the top and remains patient and unflappable. The Shralpinist takes what the mountains give and does the most with it. The Shralpinist understands that less than optimal days lead to optimal days. Awesome. And uh, where can folks find a copy of this book if they want to buy it? Uh, mountaineersbooks.org. Uh, if you're in an outdoor community, support your local bookstore. Uh, and then, you know, the, the obvious kind of book, you know, big companies that sell a lot of books have it as well. So wherever you get your books, they should have it. And if they don't ask for it. Cool. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for talking to me today and sharing all your wisdom. Um, I hope, I hope people are psyched on this book. It's a really good read. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, love the organization, and um, and yeah, thank you. And hopefully we see each other in the mountains next time. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> awesome. Today's show was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. Make sure you're safe in the mountains, no matter your activity, with the AAC's rescue benefit and medical expense coverage. Join the club today to have the peace of mind you need each time you head out there, or learn more about your existing membership benefits so you know what to do in the case of an accident. 
Learn more at AmericanAlpineClub.org slash rescue.